knowing how to manage our emotions. So all the emotion regulation skills, and I can talk to you about some of the you know specifics about that, that when we have clear ways to manage our emotions, we're less frightened of them. That was Elizabeth Cohn-Stunz on Psychologists Off the Clock. We are four clinical psychologists here to bring you cutting-edge and science-based ideas from psychology to help you flourish in your relationships, work, and health. I'm Dr. Debbie Sorensen, practicing in Mile High, Denver, Colorado, and co-author of Act Daily Journal. I'm Dr. Diana Hill, co-author with Debbie on Act Daily Journal and practicing in Seaside, Santa Barbara, California. From coast to coast, I'm Dr. Yael Schoenbrunn, a Boston-based clinical psychologist and assistant professor at Brown University. And from sunny San Diego, I'm Dr. Jill Stoddard, author of Be Mighty and the Big Book of Act Metaphors. We hope you take what you learn here to build a rich and meaningful life. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you listen to this podcast, you probably know by now that we are partnered with Praxis Continuing Education. And there's a reason why. It's because Praxis really can help you transform your clients' lives by learning how to effectively promote lasting change with evidence-based approaches. ACT, DBT, compassion-focused therapy. And we love Praxis so much especially because our very own Debbie Sorensen is going to be doing a workshop through Praxis. Tell us about it, Debbie. Yes, I'm doing a webinar on acceptance commitment therapy for burnout. This is for therapists who are working with clients who are burnt out. And of course, as therapists, we are also (laughs) occasionally may experience our own burnout. So hopefully it will be helpful for that too. It starts August 25th and it's on Wednesday afternoons just for a few Wednesdays in a row. Uh, So you can check it out on the Praxis website and learn more. I hope you can join me if you're a therapist. It'd be great to have you there. And for all of the live online courses that Praxis offers, you can go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and get a discount code. This is Yael here with Debbie to introduce an episode with the author of a new book called Coping with Cancer, DBT Skills to Manage Your Emotions and Balance Uncertainty with Hope. I actually was contacted by Guilford Press, where, where this book comes from, a few months ago about this book. You know, a lot of people are staring down the barrel of a lot of serious illnesses, COVID, but also we've seen a lot of other illnesses rise too and a lot of anxiety about illness. But what, as I read through the book, what I really started to feel is that this book is useful in managing all sorts of illness. And what's so interesting is that DBT was formulated for people with extreme emotion regulation issues. And what we find is that when people get very, very sick, emotion regulation is one of the things that becomes very, very difficult. Yeah, I mean, it's such an extreme situation and so stressful and scary that, of course, people have just a lot of emotions about it, typically. And I think that it makes sense then that that this approach would be a good fit for that because it really was designed for helping people who have, you know, high levels of emotions. Absolutely. We'll link in our show notes to a number of past episodes that we've done that go into some detail about on-the-ground skills for interpersonal effectiveness, mindfulness, distress, tolerance, emotion regulation. And in the episode today, Liz Stunts, the author of Coping with Cancer, will walk us through how we can apply some of these skills in the face of dealing with serious illness, both our own and serious illness in our loved ones. 
What I really appreciated about this conversation was she really kind of covered so much territory in just this really understandable way that I think even if you know nothing about DBT and you listen to it because maybe you're coping with an illness or you know someone who is or you just want to know about this, you'll get a really good overview in this way that's going to make sense to you and that's going to I think, really resonate. And I'm impressed that she could do that in such a brief conversation. Yeah. So you'll leave this episode with a lot of different ideas for how to manage difficult situations, things that you can practice, you know, here and now in this moment. So we hope you get a lot out of this episode. Elizabeth Cohn-Stentz is a cancer survivor, Zen student, and co-author with Marsha Linehan of Coping with Cancer, DBT Skills to Manage Your Emotions and Balance Uncertainty with Hope. Welcome, Liz. Thanks. I'm so excited to be here with you. I'm so excited to have you and to get to discuss this important topic. Now, your book is about cancer, but we had discussed that many of the ideas that you offer in your writing can be applied to various illnesses, including coronavirus. And I also believe that, that many of the things that you talk about can really be helpful for loved ones of those struggling with illness. So while we might be talking about cancer, I hope listeners that are being confronted with other illnesses might also find helpful ideas here. Absolutely. And we have taught these skills to loved ones who have found them very helpful. Oh, that's terrific. So I wonder if we can just even start off by discussing the need for books like yours in the context of how we treat serious illness. Mostly we think about treating illness in the medical domain, but there's a real role for psychotherapy. So I wonder if you can talk about the role for books like yours and for for psychological interventions in, in the world of medical treatment. Absolutely. Actually, one of the big motivators for Marsha and I to write this book was a report from the Institute of Medicine. Um, and what the Institute of Medicine said was that ways to deal with the social and emotional sides of cancer were not keeping pace with the amazing progress in medical treatments. And while there's been a lot of wonderful things that have happened in psycho-oncology. It just hasn't kept pace with how quickly it is um, happening. And the other thing is that there have been a lot of studies that show the importance of social and emotional health and that it affects not only quality of life, but some studies say it affects survival rates. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there there is real untapped power. I had done an interview with Katie Butler, who's written books on death and dying, mm-hmm. and she talks about that psychosocial interventions can can really, as you just said, improve quality of life and extend life. Um, so, before I ask you to share about your personal story, I wanted to ask you to offer a bit of an introduction to dialectical behavior therapy. So, this book is co-written with Marshall Linehan, who's the founder of DBT. And it's a very powerful evidence-based treatment. And I wonder, from your perspective, how does this therapy stand out among others? And why might it be particularly useful for managing severe medical illnesses? So um, one of the important parts about DBT is that it offers really concrete skills. Actually, Marsha is named by in a recent edition of Time magazine of the geniuses and visionaries who've transformed the world. And most of everybody else who's on it isn't alive. It's like Freud and Copernicus and Galileo. And the reason she's included in there is because her skills have just been proven to help people become more resilient uh, and create a meaningful life. So DBT skills 
are practical translations actually of the wisdom of Zen. Linehan is a Zen master, and she's taken some of the age-old wisdom of Zen and translated into practical skills. And what's interesting is that a lot of the work um, is now being validated by neuroscience. And DBT has four basic parts. One is mindfulness, which really is about paying full attention to what's happening and your reactions. And when you're diagnosed with cancer or any serious illness, one can get overwhelmed and Yet it is so important at that moment to pay attention to what's happening and what you're being told. And when you're overwhelmed, then it's particularly hard to do that. The other, another part of DBT is that they're concrete skills to manage emotions. So DBT includes concrete ways to dial down those understandable but intense emotions that can come with a medical diagnosis. Then there are skills to, um, in, she calls them interpersonal effectiveness skills. It's how to communicate. And in the book, we talk about ways to talk with loved ones and people close to you, but also how to communicate with your doctors and how to communicate at your workplace. And lastly, DBT talks about living meaningfully. And when people have a life-threatening illness, they often focus on what matters to them most. And there have absolutely been studies found that cancer patients that focus on what's most meaningful to to them do much, much better. Yeah, yeah. So we've got mindfulness, emotion regulation, interpersonal skills, and meaningful living. I wonder, too, if you can say a little bit about what the meaning of dialectical is in the context of this movement. For sure. So um, the D of DBT stands for dialectics. Uh, I say in the book, it's a 50-cent word that really just means... I like that description. (laughs) (laughs) That two things that seem to be opposite can both be true. That it's possible to feel, think, or act in more than one way. Cancer is very complex, and we can reduce or oversimplify the situation or our views of ourselves and begin to see things in a black and white way, one way or the other. Either it's total disaster or it's no big deal. And cancer patients are rarely totally healthy, they're not, or dying immediately. People are rarely totally in control or totally powerless. And it's really possible to be unhappy about cancer and still be happy about other parts of life. It's happy, it's possible to feel very scared and still be hopeful. And taking a larger perspective and seeing both sides of a complex situation is really the key to what makes this work. Yeah, I think it's such a powerful message that in times of great distress, our minds tend to get very black and white. And DBT offers these very on-the-ground skills for holding more nuance. And and there's functionality to that, to being able to hold on to the fact that most of the ways that we live through the world are far more complicated than our mind wants to believe. Like when we get overwhelmed, we sort of want to drop into more simplistic thinking, but being able to zoom out empowers us. Absolutely. In the book, we talk about taking a helicopter view, getting 
taking a larger perspective and always asking, what else could be true here? How else can I look in this situation in addition? What's really important about that is that in DBT and with the book, we're not just saying simply look on the bright side. Being diagnosed with any major illness is not just a bright, wonderful thing. And just saying, oh, but look at this other wonderful part negates people's experience. What we're, we're saying in the book is a balanced perspective, both sides, that I talk about it as if you're being on a seesaw and looking at both sides. And really, we go back and forth all the time between those sides. One moment we're hopeful, the next moment we're terrified, and that we have to know that the other side exists, that light and dark both exists. And we use a quote that Desmond Tutu says, is that hope is seeing that light exists even in the darkness. And so helping people take that helicopter view so that they can see the other side, but not, not encouraging people to just ignore, just think about the bright side. That's really unrealistic and unvalidating of people. Yeah. And one of the things I really loved about your book is how validating it is of all the different possibilities of how you might be experiencing an illness, that there is no one right way to feel and that there's often a lot of complexity to it. And that we all cope uniquely. Uh, And some of the difficulties are when loved ones or medical providers don't understand or respect our way of coping. Um, and how to, so the communication strategies are important there of how to talk about that to yourself and, and to the other person. I want to get into some of the specifics about communication strategies, but I'm going to pause myself on that front because I, I wanted to have, um, you share a little bit about yourself. So you have a history of cancer and I wonder if you can share a bit about your own story and some of the concrete ways that you discovered practices from DBT to be useful. For sure. I was not trained in DBT when I had my cancer diagnosis. And it was only later that I was trained in DBT by Marsha and became Marsha's Zen student and actually do twice a year, I do silent meditation retreats with her. And so I did that. And then I really got to know her. And uh, I used to debate with her a lot. Almost everybody else were DBT therapists. And I was a psychoanalyst. And talk yeah, you about don't, you don't fit in with the behavioral crew. <laughs> I don't fit in with the behavioral crew, but I had a living experience with her of openness to all perspectives. And I lived through her openness to me and wait a minute, I'm learning something from you and the give and take um that way. So I got it very much well- It's just, this is a little bit of a side note, but it's such an interesting conversation because all of us co-hosts are more evidence-based behaviorally oriented, but we've been Mm -hmm. talking a bit about how important it is to make space for all views and that we have as psychotherapists and, and, you know, clinically oriented people much more in common than we have different in the different camps of psychology. And so if we can create these conversations, there's so much richness to be had. So I love that example of you and Marsha Linehan coming together and having these kind of open debates with a ton of curiosity. Oh, in in the analytic world, people are like, you're going to write a book with Marsha Linehan and all her DBT colleagues are like, you're going to write a book with Liz, right? 
Well, it, it's really richer. Uh, it was a rich experience for us, but we like to think that the whole thing was richer for that. Okay, so I, I got you off off the storyline. So you had a cancer diagnosis and then got to know Marsha and started talking. Right. I wasn't even talking to Marsha particularly about my own cancer diagnosis, but I was involved with cancer support and and designing programs for cancer support. And then I said to her, Marsha, these skills could be really useful for cancer. And can I go try it? And she was like, yeah, go, go for it. And let me know how it goes. And so we ran groups for cancer patients, teaching them the skills. And that's when we also did separate groups for caregivers. And it was wildly successful. And then I went back to her and said, Marsha, okay, we need to like do a mimeo or something and replicate this. And she's like, no, 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 we're, we're writing a book. <laughs> so I did not set out on this path in this way. Oh, um, how fun. Yes. You went into new territory without expecting it. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, it was obviously over many years, but yes. That's awesome. In what way did you notice it being particularly helpful for you in the ongoing relationship that one has with something like cancer? In other words, like if you could point out a couple of skills that are are ones that you take advantage of and find quite useful. Well, I would I, all of them. <laughs> so, but, uh, but I think the um, the the first one is the whole idea of acceptance of our emotions. Um, we tend to fight our emotions, and even I mean, I, I was on faculty of an analytic program. Um, but when I was diagnosed, it was like, not me, I'm not going to be vulnerable. I'm not going to be scared. And I denied any of those emotions until they were smack hit me in the face. And, um, I think knowing how to manage our emotions. So all the emotion regulation skills, and I can talk to you about some of the you know, specifics about that, that when we have clear ways to manage our emotions, we're less frightened of them. And then we don't hold them off. So for speaking personally, I think, I know, I was holding off how frightened, how scared, I wasn't allowing any vulnerability, um, because I thought I could only be overwhelmed. So I was seeing things in a very black and white way. And when I learned ways to regulate my emotions, I realized, okay, I can allow myself to be frightened. And to be frightened doesn't mean you're going to be overwhelmed. I can be sad about certain losses and not think I'm going to cry forever and know that I would stop. So that it was an entire opening um, for me. And I think many people find that experience. Yeah. And I think there's something so incredible about that insight that when we try to push away emotions to shut them down or suppress them, they get bigger, stickier, more overwhelming. And what you're saying is that when we learn how to manage them, to open up to them, to allow for them, that we have a lot more ability to kind of move through them without being taken down by them. And there's something very like nuanced about that because we can't control emotions but we can learn to manage them more effectively. Exactly right. Exactly right. And first of all, the research is when we try to avoid them, it makes them worse. You know, neuroscience has shown us that. If we um, And also, 
when we push them away, we miss their valuable message. Our fear and anxiety are natural and understandable responses to a threat to one's life. And it can teach us that we need to do something. Our sadness makes sense, but it may also help us to reach out to people. And so they're valuable messages. The problem is when they stay too long or they're more intense than is useful. And then knowing ways to dial them down is very helpful. So we want to let them come and then be able to dial them down when they're more intense than is useful. So can you give me one example of a skill that might be used to dial down Uh, let's say, the emotion of anxiety when anxiety has sort of stopped serving us well? Um, Sure. And I'm I'm not going to just do one. (laughs) I'd like to do it because it really, they work, the skills work together. The skills are about things that you can do with your body, um, with your thoughts, with your emotions and your actions. Because when you Um, We talk about those things as like an overwhelmed circuit. And the first thing you have to do is look at the circuit breaker because all of those things, your body is affecting your emotions, which is affecting your thoughts, which is affecting your actions. And it goes around in a big circle. Right. They're not not occurring independently of one another. They're all intertwined. Absolutely not. And when something happens like a medical illness or any kind of overwhelming thing, then things are much more intense and things can get out of balance. So we talk in the book about you have to look at the circuit breaker and see what are the things that got too charged and blew your fuse. So it's first, and that's really what mindfulness is. It's about paying attention um, and not avoiding looking at what's happening. So that we need to look both at what's happening with our body, what's happening with our emotions, what we're looking at, paying attention to our thoughts and what we're doing. And then there are ways to dial it down in each of those four areas. So with our body, when we notice a rapid rapid heart rate and we're really anxious, one can take longer exhales and slow down the rate of breathing. And that actually calms a rapidly beating heart rate. Going through and scanning our body from head to toe relaxes those muscles. So we're, we're starting to physiologically change what's happening in our body. I particularly love the research that a 20-second hug has actually been shown to lower stress and anxiety. So, that, so we want to do changes to our body. We also want to look at what's happening then with our emotions. And we use a skill we call STOP which is to stand back, take a moment and take a pause, take a breath and then observe and look and see and see if we can name the emotion that we're feeling. That's not always so easy. And in the book, we have a separate chapter for fear and anxiety, a separate one for sadness, a separate one for anger to help people know physiological ways in their body and to identify their emotions. But the neuroscience expression is name it to tame it because neuroscience shows exactly what Marsha has been saying for years, that when you can label the emotion, that helps to calm the central nervous system. And actually studies have shown that cancer patients who can understand and label their feelings 
not only cope better, but they show health benefits. So that's what you want to do with your emotions. Then you want to try and balance your thoughts. And Marsha has a wonderful skill in DBT called Check the Facts. We make all kinds of inaccurate assumptions. I'm going to die. What's the future going to be? And sometimes they're true. And many times they're not. And many times when we're just believing unproven ideas about the future, it's getting us more scared and frightened. So checking the facts is a really important one. And then to take that helicopter view I was talking about and saying, what else could be true here? What is the opposite side to take a balanced view of what's happening? Where's the hope? that can be here? What are the light sides? And balance our our thinking that way. And lastly, DBT has a lot of great skills to balance our actions. Um, So Marsha talks a lot, and we use in the book a lot of distraction skills um, that help us when we're so overwhelmed and we just now need to bring it down. Distraction really works. Soothing ourselves with all kinds of calming and wonderful sensations. Pleasurable, funny events. So you want to do actions that are the opposite of what's happening. So if you're overwhelmingly sad, doing funny, humorous things is wonderful. Humor has been found to boost mood, diminish pain, strengthen the immune system, and protect against the damaging effects of um, stress. Also, Doing things that give one a sense of mastery or contributing, even if it's cleaning out a drawer, it doesn't have to be changing the world, but it gives one a sense of doing something that makes them feel more in control. We talk a lot about compassionate self-talk, which can talking to ourselves with the understanding and encouragement that we would give to a beloved friend that other cancer patients are struggling just like me. And that rebalances one's self-doubt and the toxic self-criticism that can happen a lot. Um, And compassion skills have been shown to strengthen resilience in the face of stress and can even affect an immune response. Gratitude can sometimes feel like too much to ask when you're feeling very sick, but it might be worthwhile for people because patients who made weekly lists of things that they were grateful for were significantly happier and had fewer health problems than groups that just focused on the hassles. When we talk about gratitude or any of these things, we remind people that we're not just saying, oh, just be grateful here, just look on the bright side, that we're talking about balancing the other side. So each of these actions, we call them balancing actions. There's so much richness in in what you just offered. And I, I just want to kind of point out that there are lots of things to pick from and you can pick and choose what works for you. And I'll just share mm-hmm. a personal anecdote that... My father, who um, passed away from cancer now two years ago, but fought valiantly, he was one of the strongest people I know, and he he had a tumor that landed in his brain, and he he had a a stroke because of mm-hmm. this tumor, and he was really suffering and wasn't able to communicate well, and he was clearly very anxious. He couldn't sleep. He just was really uncomfortable in his body. 
And I remember my mom asked me, you know, can you help him to meditate? Maybe it'll relax him. So I tried to guide him in a breathing exercise and it seemed to just spike his anxiety even more. And so what we turned to was just some distracting activities, some pictures that my kids had sent him, just some funny stories, watching a little bit of TV. And that was more helpful. And I think it just really depends on what's going on. You, you have to figure out what's useful for you. And, you know, without judgment, it's just being able to turn towards a skill, a practice that can help you in that moment. Absolutely. We talk about the skills in the book as a menu of options and that the patient is the best guide to what's going to be useful and at what moment. And maybe at one moment, humor is um, very helpful, but certain moments, that's not very useful for people. And so different skills for different moments, but we want people to have a menu of options for them. We've had a number of guests who want to offer you, our listeners, discounted access to some of their fantastic programs. So if you want to learn powerful practices for happiness, calm, and well-being, we have several offerings from Rick Hansen. If you want app-based behavior change, you can check out Judd Brewer's apps for anxiety, eating well, and smoking cessation. Or you can learn how to be a calmer parent with Mindful Mama mentor Hunter Clark Fields. So go to our website, offtheclockpsych.com, and visit our offers page, where you will find access to free courses and discount promo codes. If you enjoy the podcast, please consider making a values-based donation on Patreon. Even a small contribution helps us with some of our expenses. You could think of it as taking a co-host out for a cup of coffee. And you can link to Patreon on our website or just search for us on patreon.com. So when it comes to making good decisions, one thing that I wanted to ask you to talk a bit about is this concept in DBT of wise mind. Can you explain to us what is wise mind and how can we use it to, for example, make choices on what kind of a skill might be most useful for us in a given moment? Absolutely. So remember, we were talking about that we all respond differently. Some of us tend to be more emotional and we can see the negative parts of things and be very emotionally reactive. And others of us are very restrained and focus just on the facts and may miss focusing on some of the emotional and the feeling parts and may even miss some of the quality of life pieces. The Marsha talks about, or in the book, we actually talk about it as a, in a seesaw between those two extremes. And the ideal, which none of us is ever in all the time, because none of us ever live in a balanced middle of a seesaw, is what's called wise mind. And it's the balance of emotion and the the rational thinking and putting the facts and the emotions in a, a middle balance. And so we're looking for that balanced middle place. And that's the wise mind. What we know from Zen, and Marsha talks about it, that we all have a wise mind, even if we don't know it and can't always access it, and that we try and help people by looking at, okay, what's the other side? Where am I too much in this side? Where am I too much in this side? And how can I get in a little bit more of a balanced place? And all those strategies are to help you get in a balanced middle place. And decision, our most effective decisions are made in that middle place with a balanced, wise mind. 
We say you make the most effective decisions after you have stood back, let the emotions, allowed the emotions, so you're not just on the restrained side, but then let them settle. And that's the decision, the decision that feels right after you've allowed the emotions and let them settle is a wise mind decision. Yeah. I I love the concept of wise mind. And I always, I, I like the visual image of that Venn diagram where you have mm-hmm. one circle that's emotion, one circle mm-hmm. that's rational, and that the overlap between them is where your wise mind is. And part of why I love that is I think in our culture, we tend to denigrate emotions as kind of being distracting and not helpful. But actually, as you're saying, emotions serve a huge function. They inform us. You know, is there something that we need to take care of? Are we sad and therefore we need to reach out for social support? Is there, is there a medical provider or, or a medical diagnostic exam that needs to be done? So emotion, fear, sadness, even anger, if there's an injustice or we're in danger, they, they have important functions as does our rational side, you know, what's the logic, what are the facts, what's the information that we need to gather. And together, the rational side and the emotional side can guide us to make the best kind of decision. And so really, as you're saying, allowing, like really allowing both sides to be a part of that decision-making process is where the most powerful, wisest decisions come from. One other area that I wanted to dive into a little bit is managing pain, right? So if somebody is struggling Mm -hmm. with illness, either the illness itself or the treatments can be very physically uncomfortable. And I think here too, DBT actually offers a lot of practices and, and ideas that can be quite helpful. So I wonder if you can speak to that arena a little bit. Sure. Well, first piece is the part about acknowledging it is, you know, the balance between acknowledging it and not letting it overwhelm happens with pain too, because they have found that patients that don't acknowledge their pain, then don't speak up to their providers. And then the pain is actually much more intense. But of course, we don't want the pain to be overwhelming. So with the physical pain, so a lot of the balancing actions I talked about, the certainly distraction works really, really well for physical pain. It works in the moment. They actually, if you put somebody in, you know, with those virtual reality goggles and you can absorb them, the studies show that that does really well for pain, but it's of the moment. The minute that the distraction goes away, the pain return. So these are ways to just cope with it. Obviously there are other medical ways, but so distractions work soothing sensations help. Yeah, but I like that you're saying that, you know, again, pain can be informative. You know, we can yes. medically manage it, but but we shouldn't ignore it altogether because in pain, there's good information. I always use the example when I'm with patients of, you know, we don't want to ignore sadness just as we wouldn't want to ignore the pain of a broken leg. We, we have That's to sort right. of attend to it. Is there something that we need to take care of? Or is it a signal that's gone off that is no longer useful? But we can't know that unless we get curious and turn towards it, allow for it to inform right. us. And then turn towards it. And then when it's more than we, you know, goes on too long or more than we can bear, then we want to distract it. We want to give ourselves a lot of self-compassion about that. Oh my goodness, this is so hard. Other people have had this and gotten through this, but 
I know I need to speak up. I need to say it's more intense than I can manage so that we need to communicate about it too. Yeah. So let's actually turn towards talking about the interpersonal effectiveness because this is a really nice segue and so important because I think relationships when you're ill or, or when somebody that you love dearly is ill can really be colored by, well, fear, anger, confusion, overwhelm. Self-criticism is a big one because we have these attitudes about ourselves that can color our communication. Yeah. So when you said self-criticism, I immediately thought to, I was really self-critical of myself and how I handled my father's illness, but you might have meant, you know, the actual patient might be self-critical. I mean both. I mean both. Uh, I think that the caregivers are self-critical. Oh, if I could just do this or give him this skill, I, uh, how helpless we feel as caregivers. And then the patient, well, I I should have done this, or I should do this, or if I did it this way, you know, my loved ones wouldn't be suffering or people wouldn't be backing off. We tell ourselves lots of stories and give ourselves a very hard time. And the caregivers and the patients do it. Absolutely both. So when you hear somebody sharing a pretty self-critical narrative and one that interferes with interpersonal functioning, what kinds of advice do you give them? So um, the first is to tell people how normal that is, how we all do that, and that they're not just doing that because they have some terrible limitations that other people don't have. So that when people understand how normal that is, and that other people do that to themselves in a not productive way, because people can then, we beat ourselves up for for beating ourselves up, right? We, um, we layer it on. <laughs> we definitely layer it on. So, um, and we talk about um, self-talk, which is to talk to ourselves in a loving way, as you would uh, a friend Other people whose loved one is sick, you know, feel helpless, just like me, are frustrated that they can't do more, just like me. Other cancer patients hold themselves responsible for their stress of their loved ones, even though there's nothing they could do about that, just like me. So first of all, helping people with their attitude towards themselves and saying how normal the self-criticism is and giving them what we're calling it self-talk, it's really the self-compassion strategies. Yeah, I was going to say, you know, that that really reflects this construct of self-compassion, the common humanity piece, right? You know, the truth is, um, and I learned this working with Marsha and Zen and different psychological disciplines, there are, the great wisdoms are in all traditions. They may have different names, but this, the, the truths are there. Um, in a way, that's how you know that they're the great truths because yes, because yes. everybody adopts them. Yes, they're so yes, fundamental. Yes. So, you know, it doesn't matter the name, but giving the patient the practice, that's, that's the point here. Yeah. So self-kindness. Okay. And then how about, and this is a tricky relationship, but what kinds of advice do you have for people in navigating the relationship with medical providers? Because especially, and I know this from my experience with my father, but it can be really overwhelming and it can be very hard to assert yourself to even share what's going on or to even ask for the information that you're really yearning for 
because providers are often in a hurry and, you know, for them, it's not novel. (laughs) For them, it's not as distressing as it is for you. So what are skills that can serve us well in that arena? So there are um, clear skills about how to ask for what you want and maintain both the relationship and your self-respect. So to ask for what you want is a skill that Marsha calls, well, she calls a dear man, but we use, I'll just go into the dear part. So the dear is to describe the situation. So factually say what's happening. Okay, so I have some more questions. And during our last medical appointment, I didn't have enough time to ask all my questions. The E of dear is to express, to say how that is for you. Uh, That left me a little bit more frustrated, overwhelmed, angry. The A is to ask or assert what you want. Is there a way that you can give me more time or have your physician's assistant or have somebody explain these things to me and answer my questions? And then the R is to reinforce or basically say what's in it for the other person. I think I can be a more cooperative patient. I'll be a little bit more relaxed. It'll help strain my anxiety if there is a way to do that. So then there are two other skills that are about, so suppose you want to maintain the relationship. You don't want to alienate your doctor. And there's a skill called give. And for time's sake, I'll just abstract it. It's really about being gentle and thinking about their perspective, that the doctor may not be just indifferent to you, but maybe somebody was really sick in the next room. Maybe the, you know, there was a tight time thing. What else could be going on? Um, thinking about the other person's perspective and also being gentle about it. It's, it boils down to you get more flies with honey, right? You attract more, what's right. the expression? That yeah, the softness. Right. We can't uh, say on air the, the alternative. <laughs> right, yes. And then there's a skill that she calls the fair skill. And that's about maintaining your self-respect so that you want to focus on how you want to feel about yourself when you're finished with the interaction, whether you get what you want or you don't. And that's really about being fair, making your complaints, but not exaggerating it, um, not making yourself more helpless or overwhelmed or having it be more catastrophic than is really the case so that you feel okay about yourself. You know that you've done that. And also with these skills is um, a lot of validation that you have a right to do this. You're asking for legitimate reasons. You're not just being a prima donna, um, too demanding. Uh, and so you want to look at all the self-critical thoughts that people have about themselves, about why they shouldn't ask uh, and check their facts about what are the costs of asking for what they want and need. Right. Like I'm not important enough. The doctor's too busy and I shouldn't. Right. I'm being a demanding patient that I'll be, you know, ignore. Right. Yeah. I love, I love that combination. And it kind of gets back to the, the sort of core of DBT, the dialectic piece, which is that we can be assertive and gentle. We can, you know, pursue what the information that we're entitled to, but also be empathic to what's going on for the other person. And when we're able to kind of hold both skillfully, we're more likely to get what we want. 
And at the same time, we can't, uh, you know, really make certain the outcome. And so at the end of the day, all we can control is how we act. And so if we can be clear on what we want to stand for, then regardless of the outcome, we can feel some sense of pride. Related to the interpersonal domain, one thing that I was thinking about as you were talking is that a lot of this advice is really good if you're the loved one of somebody who's struggling with illness, that you can assert your, yeah. So maybe instead of me posing it, I'm, I'm curious how you see some of these skills playing out helpfully for somebody who's kind of like not sure how to be helpful for somebody that they love. You know, I'm asked all the time, people say, I don't know how to talk to people. Someone has cancer. I don't know what to say and what to do. And the number one thing that I say all the time is listening is the very first and really the last thing. And asking the patient what they want and what they don't want. So respecting their dignity and wish to feel competent and their own way of coping with things so that and often as as loved ones we want to we want to teach them to breathe we want to you know we, we want to do anything we can because we feel so helpless and we want to help and sometimes we dive into those things without asking the person at, because of our own helplessness so often i say to people ask, you know, when often when someone says, I've been diagnosed with cancer, and someone says, Oh, yeah, let me tell you about my friend. And sometimes the story of our friend is a really useful story to hear. And sometimes they don't want to hear about our friend and the doctor our friend used may not be the right thing. So I often say, say, Oh, I had a friend that went through a similar experience. Do you think it would be, you know, would it be helpful to know that? Because then you're empowering and respecting the other person. Because in our wish to be loved ones, we want to be so reassuring. We can say well-intended things like, don't worry, I know you're going to be fine. Maybe that's right. And maybe that's the reassurance that the person wants. And maybe that's totally invalidating how sick they are, how frightened they are and not giving them a chance to do that. So, and same thing with those well-intended, oh, why don't you try this diet, or I know this, or do this. And often those are great suggestions, but asking the person and respecting their competence that way. And it's really hard to do because as loved ones, we feel so helpless and we so desperately want to do something. And I know all this, you know, I was just talking to a friend the other day and I really wanted to jump in and do something and to just be listening and texting and saying, I'm here when and if you want, no need to reply and letting the other person let us know. But that's hard to do. It's so hard to do. I'm I'm just sort of reflecting back that one of my best friends from when I was a, a younger girl was recently diagnosed with breast cancer and she's doing great now. But when she was first diagnosed, she kind of went silent. And another one of our friends and I were just going back and forth. We were so anxious. We, we didn't really know what was going on. We, we wanted so badly to help. We weren't sure how to help. It was the middle of the pandemic. And I, I sort of, I drew on my own DBT wisdom and I just reached out to her and said, Hey, I know you may just need some space, but I'm here. I'm ready and willing to do anything. Just say the word. Mm -hmm. When and if. 
Yeah, and if. So I think if you can reach out with um, almost an admission of, I don't really know how to help, but I really want to help. That's right. And I'm happy to take your cue. Yep. can be a very loving gesture. One of the things that I found really helpful in this day and age is I send texts all the time thinking about you, no need to reply. And it gives a person the space, but they know they're not forgotten. And even if they don't reply for, I've had people for months and then and then later have them say to me, that was so helpful when they're ready to come out and to know that they weren't forgotten and but also respected. But hard, it's hard for us. It's hard because I think the uncertainty and, you know, even from the sideline, it almost feels more uncertain because you don't even have the information about what's going on. That's for right. Struggling. That's right. That's right. And some, some of us are more private and, you know, don't want to share that information. And that when we take it personally, then it's about us and not. Right. 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 So it's a good tip when somebody is struggling, try hard not to make it about you. Try hard to hold your own stuff and find support around that from somebody else while you mm-hmm. offer support to the person who's mm-hmm. struggling with the illness. Again, mm-hmm. very hard to do and, and easier said than done. Exactly. Yeah. So validation on that front. Um, you end the book with a chapter on living meaningfully, and you write that many people find in dealing with illness an opportunity to connect more deeply with what matters most to them. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious for you, what are some important ways that we can connect to that meaning when we're struggling with illness or, or even when somebody that we love is struggling with illness? So we go through an inventory in the book that people can kind of ask themselves about what makes a difference and what matters to them and helping people to be in touch and think about that who are the what are the who are the people and the relationships and the activities and also that living meaningfully doesn't have to be about some grand gesture of saving the world that it's cultivating our pet or our garden you know or and what's meaningful is a very personal and individual thing. It's really often about connecting to something larger than oneself. For some people, that's family. For some people, that's nature. For some people, that's science. For some people, that's religion. But having a sense of being connected to something larger than oneself has have been shown to be very important for patients with, with a life-threatening illness. And now they're saying that spirituality, which by spirituality, I mean connecting to what matters, to something greater than themselves, is now considered part of optimal supportive care for patients with cancer. And there's actually been research that connecting to one's spirituality, and again, that doesn't have to be religion. It, um, it can be science, nature, family, whatever is a larger something, can improve immune functioning, lower the risk of developing cancer, and people have been shown to have greater emotional, physical health, pain tolerance, and even survival. Yeah. It's very important to help people connect to that. Yeah. So there's something about, again, this is coming back full circle to the very beginning of our interview, but when we really pursue cultivating meaning in our lives, that it not only improves the quality of our life, it can sometimes even improve the quantity in in really tangible ways. And and I love, too, that you're pointing out 
how flexible that pursuit can be, that it's really just about what's meaningful for you, but that it's the sense of pursuing something bigger than just you. So my mother, my mother-in-law is a 98-year-old woman, and she's written history books. And she is still working on, barely, I mean, but some history book, you know, that uh, it's local history in Virginia, that, and the idea that she still has that on days she's well enough to go back to, I think is why she's 98, and really still doing okay, because she feels like there's something besides her own personal concerns that is larger than herself that's going to leave an impact on this world and knowing that she's doing something important and meaningful is keeping her going. Yeah. Well, Liz, I can imagine that you'll be doing this work when you're 98 and driving <laughs> and making a difference. Are there other resources that you want to point people to before I let you go? Just to let people know that we are in the process of creating a curriculum so that because reading the book is great, but people need ongoing practice um, yes. to both train um, clinicians to offer this and for patients and loved ones to practice it. And that is in development. Uh, and so we have a website, copingwithcancerdbt.com. Uh, and actually, there's a contact thing. If people want to leave their name as, as things are rolling out, we can be in oh. touch. People put their contact information in, yes. they, they can be notified when that curriculum is available. Yes, yes. Awesome. Yes. That sounds in like it'd be an incredible resource. Um, and thank you so much for coming on and sharing. I mean, you, you shared so many of the actual skills that one can practice. And I, I just really recommend picking up the book because you walk through a lot more than you were able to cover in this episode, too. Um, but this is such an important topic. And I just really appreciate the work that you and Marsha Linehan are doing on this front. Thank you. Well, thanks for having us. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. If you enjoy our podcast, you can help us out by leaving a review or contributing on Patreon. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd like to thank our strategic consultant, Michael Harold, our dissemination coordinator, Katie Rothfelder, and our editorial coordinator, Melissa Miller. This podcast is for informational and entertainment purposes only and is not meant to be a substitute for mental health treatment. If you're having a mental health emergency, dial 911. If you're looking for mental health treatment, please visit the resources page of our website, offtheclockpsych.com.